Hey, what's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, your host here on Felony Friday, and I want to try something new. Um, don't have an ad for you here or anything like that, but I have a request. So I want to try something with Apple Podcast reviews. Um, they're very important in podcasts, and they help you get more attention and eyeballs on your podcast. You get in the, uh, you know, you rank up in the categories, all that stuff. So I would like people to give five-star reviews. So I'm going to reward people who give us five-star reviews, review the podcast, say something nice, and then if after you do that, if you drop either a topic you'd like me to talk about, a question, and ask me anything, you know, you can ask me a random question, and I will address it on the show if it's if it's appropriate. But you can drop that after your five-star rating and your review, put what you want to talk about there on the show I will talk about it, and um, and it helps the show. It helps you influence the show. It's a uh, it's a win win. So please consider doing that. Make sure, even if you listen on you know Spotify or Overcast or whatever, do it on Apple Podcast. They have the most control right now, so do it there, and uh, we'll see what happens. All right, thank you very much. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday. It is a July 4th edition, actually July 3rd, if you're listening to this on Friday, but it is 4th of July weekend, one of my favorite holidays out of the year mainly because I just enjoy to uh, relax with the family, drink some beer, and watch fireworks, which I can't watch fireworks this year because fireworks have been made illegal by COVID because everyone knows that watching fireworks outside is the most dangerous thing you can do spreading coronavirus. Obviously, I'm kidding. It's freaking ridiculous. Anyway, I digress. I want to, uh, I talked about, during the pre-roll, Apple Podcast reviews and uh, sending those in. They've been coming in fast and furious. I want to hit on a couple of those today. I love that you guys are leaving great reviews, asking questions. I realize we're a little bit behind. I can't remember if Mark or Brian have addressed any of these, so I'm only going to address the ones that uh, call Funnily Friday out specifically. Two of them. There's there's more. There's there's a lot more. You guys have been very very busy uh, giving reviews, and please continue to. But I want to uh, talk about a couple here. So this one coming from DJ Hoffman with seven ends, roughly. Um, love the username. Love the show. Question slash topic. I worked in the juvenile justice system in PA as a physician. He says, would love a show on that. Would be happy to talk to you about my experience as well. Well, I would be happy to hear a little bit more about your experience and a little bit more about what you'd want in a show. What I'd like you to do, DJ Hoffman, is uh, send me an email, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com with the topic of uh, juvenile justice physician in PA, something like that. And, and we'll talk. We'll see what happens. I, I, w- I would like to do some episodes on the juvenile justice system a- as a whole. So uh, I think that's it's a perfect opportunity, and I would love to get your, uh, your insight and your advice. So moving on to the next review that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to skip one 
I'm going to skip one here from username You Can't Take the Sky from Me, which uh, he talks about working for a major utility. And I actually want to table this one. I want to talk to Mark and Brian because this one will be a good one to break down on uh, maybe an episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. So I'm going to save that one. I'm not going to read it now. And maybe we'll bring that up on a, on our roundtable show. I'm going to do one more here. This one comes from a Jedi Mind Trick 621. Subject line, straight talk, no BS. So I finally figured out how to write a review on iTunes. Of course, you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom. Anyway, just wanted to say I love the flagship show as well as ELL and Felony Friday. You guys don't pull any punches, and I appreciate that. For John's solicitation, for questions for Felony Friday, what do you think would be the economic impact if we suddenly pardoned everyone that was imprisoned for nonviolent crimes, as Joe, Jor- as Joe Jorgensen has suggested? Specifically, do you see any potential negative impacts by releasing so many people all at once? Um, great question. And I've obviously thought about this in the past, but I don't have a prepared answer as I'm just reading reviews randomly um, during this uh, intro here. What what I would say, and first to speak as the the drug uh, drug war as a whole, drug decriminalization as a whole, often on Lions of Liberty, you've probably heard us talk about with some of our guests, we talk about it being like a game of Jenga. And uh, when you're dismantling the state... I feel like the war on drugs, pulling that Jenga piece out, is one of the safest pieces to pull out, having the least negative impact, I should say initial negative impact, um, that other things would. You know, a lot of things dismantling the state, dismantling welfare, um, things like that, you're going to have people just going nuts because they lose their uh, their welfare payments, things like that. But with the war on drugs, of course, you're going to have some job loss in the courts and in prisons and in lawyers might lose some work, things like that. And if you talk about decriminalizing drugs, you know, drug dealers are going to lose work too, things like that. But when you talk about releasing criminals, or I shouldn't say criminals, when you talk about releasing nonviolent offenders uh, from their prison sentence and uh, giving them their freedom back, I I don't think, you know, I I think the fear would be uh, finding them all jobs or them being able to find work to add value to society. So I don't think there would be a negative safety hazard. Of course, there's going to be your your cases here and there where, where people have been uh, sort of tainted by the by the criminal justice system, by the prison system, and you know they might have actually become worse being in that system, become more violent. Maybe they went in for a nonviolent crime and prison turned them violent. So you might have some cases like that where some some crimes happen of people who were released. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But I think the vast majority, because um, I talk to these people all the time, I think the vast majority would embrace their freedom. And the biggest thing is support. So people have family support, great, fantastic. That's one step. They have a place to live, someone help them get on their feet, someone to drive, drive them to a job, things like that. But probably a lot of them aren't going to have any family support. So who fills that void? It's going to have to be the private sector. It's going to have to be charities. It's going to have to be nonprofits that step up and do this. And honestly, it even aside from, uh, you know, a place to live, a place to work, transportation, there's also just clothing, clothing to wear. Finding, I mean, you get released from prison, you have nothing. You have clothes on your back and you got a couple bucks in your pocket. That's all you got. So there need to be some programs. And I've put some thought into 
you know, ways this could be set up. And I'm not in a position to announce anything right now. And I've also talked about some some things that maybe we could do at Lions of Liberty uh, to sort of ease this burden. And I don't know if if we're there yet to uh, to start putting those things together, but I, I would hope in the next couple of years we can be. Because uh, I do think that we are going to come to a time in this country, and I hope and I pray that we do, where all nonviolent drug offenders, all nonviolent criminals will be released. We'll have their sentences reduced and we'll get out of prison. I think society is changing. People are becoming more compassionate and understanding how broken the criminal justice system is. So I'm excited for that. And people are going to need to step up. And hopefully here at Lions of Liberty, we can be a part of that solution. And you as a listener and uh, as a supporter on, on Patreon, anyone who's supporting us on Patreon, hopefully we can figure out a way for you to support us in uh, in doing this and uh, contribute to the cause. Um, but we're only one small part. Other, and we haven't done anything yet. There's other organizations already doing stuff, so I don't want to take credit for something we haven't done. But there's going to need to be a huge effort of uh, private uh, enterprises and charities and churches stepping up to, uh, to fill the void because there's going to be a, a big demand for it. And entrepreneurs hiring formerly incarcerated individuals going to need that too. So I hope that answers your question. So I guess to answer the question, yes, there would be negative impacts if people don't step up to offer charity to these individuals because they're going to need it. And that's uh, the state is not good at that. I'm sure my listeners here um, understand that. So just pushing money to a, a state agency to offer those services will probably end terribly because as my guest today talks about, you'll hear my guest Rick Schwetz talk about um, when he was released from prison, going into a halfway house, the crazy experience that he went through, that stuff tends to happen when you give the state a bunch of money to uh, correct people and to reintegrate them back into society. You often end up getting the cesspool of society being attracted uh, to, that, to that money right there. So we want to avoid that at all costs. Think I've rambled long enough. I want to get to today's show. Great episode with Rick Schwetz talking about his own experience in prison, his past, um, his prison experience, where he is now, but also advocating for his friend Eddie Mack, Eddie McDevitt, who was in prison for accidentally killing a former police officer during a bar fight. Uh, this is a great show. Please share it around, guys. Thank you for your support. Hope you enjoy the show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Rick Schwetz. Rick actually reached out to me uh, a few weeks ago. He wanted to advocate for his friend, Eddie Mack. Eddie is currently serving a uh, life sentence in prison for a tragedy that essentially, uh, from my understanding, uh, resulted from a bar fight. So we'll get into the details about that and why Rick is so passionate about advocating for uh, Eddie's release for his clemency. Uh, before we do that, we'll talk about, um, learn about Rick's story, learn about his past and his time in prison. So let's get started with that. Rick, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show. And whenever people reach out to me, I do get a lot of emails and people with different stories. Um, I, I was... Honestly, when I read it and uh, you explained what had happened with with uh, with Eddie, and uh, you know, I think it's something that 
It's important on many levels. Um, you know, I think the focus right now on uh, compassionate release and clemency and all the everything around COVID is really around nonviolent criminals, right? At least that's what I've seen. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, with Eddie having the violent crime, I'm interested to really talk about that case, learn more about it, learn about, you know, your friendship with him, how you guys know each other and, uh, and, and go from there. So, but before we get to that, um, so my audience can learn about you, if you could just kind of share with us, you know, about your, I, I know you did some time in prison a couple of years, share with us, you know, really the run up to that, what your life was like, how that played out. Sure. Sure. So my name is Rick. I'm originally, uh, well, originally I'm an immigrant to the country. I immigrated to the country when I was uh, two years old. My mother smuggled me in, literally, um, left me at an orphanage, and um, I became a citizen when I was about 13 years old. So wow. um, I was already in the system at like two. Uh, <laughs> Mom was a little cruel on me. She left me at an orphanage. I, apparently, I came from Germany, which I just found out about a year ago. Um, but when mom left me at this orphanage, it was mostly Haitian Americans in the middle of Brooklyn, New York. So they weren't prepared for German, butt, that was for sure. Um, nobody spoke German. Nobody knew anything about me because my mom didn't leave any information about me. Um, how, how so, old, the, so how old were you when you found, found that part of the story out? Or did you know that growing up that? Well, I grew up in the orphanage basically from about seven. So, um, I got adopted when I was seven years old. So I knew a lot about me, but I didn't know much about where I came from and nobody could explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, the big void there where a lot of people know, you know, your mom, you know, your dad, you know where you're born at. I didn't even know my birthday. Like my birthday wasn't really technically my birthday. I was celebrating the wrong birthday, the wrong year for mm-hmm. uh, my life. I was actually a couple years older than I thought I was, which oh, sort yeah. of I, I was always struggling in school, but, uh, <laughs> so, um, I, about 13 years old, um, I became a citizen. Um, I got myself legalized, uh, but I was already, you know, experienced the system in some aspects. Being through from two to seven, you're in a different type of foster care because you don't have paperwork. You're not a legal citizen, um, so you can't be adopted out. Uh, you couldn't go to the regular foster placements. You had to go to some of the not so nice establishments. Uh, so it gave me a good experience from that age of what it was like to be institutionalized. Uh, so um, when I got out when I was seven, I didn't last long with the adopted family. Uh, I emancipated, emancipated myself when I was fifteen. Uh, just because we just couldn't get along. I was already broken when I showed up at their doorstep. So it wasn't much you know, they could do. And those times were different where people didn't understand the psychology of a child sitting in an orphanage from another country. You know, like, so um, I started obviously at 15 being in New York City. Um, the way to survive was to sort of run the streets. You know, there was only one way to really survive at that age. Uh, it was either run the streets or get run over. Uh, so that's when I started to... Um, live in the criminal aspect of things where, you know, crime became, it was never really something that bothered me because of the environment that I had grown up in. Uh, so I was sterile to the, um, it didn't bother me going out and, you know, breaking into cars or stealing stuff from stores and stuff of that nature. Um, and that led me down my path, uh, to when I got, it was in my mid twenties in Pennsylvania, um, down here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And a friend of mine, uh, that I was running with had sold some narcotics to a police officer. Apparently, previously, uh, the, pre- the the police showed up with a uh, uh, no narc warrant and they kicked the door down. Um, I was in the apartment at the time. I didn't live there. I didn't sell anything to the cops. Um, the cops didn't even know me, but I was there in that apartment when it got raided. Uh, so they wanted charging me with a conspiracy. Uh, my friend that sold to the cops got out in six months, and I wound up getting originally ten years, uh, which then got appealed down to five. 
So how, how did that happen? So, so were the cops, they weren't, they weren't expecting you to be there. Were you on their radar or was it just like, uh, I, look, I'm not going to pull any punches. My karma is a real, is a real mother. And, and I was doing lots of bad things at the time in Allentown and as being a white kid from New York, that's running around down Pennsylvania in the ghetto. I was obviously like, I, I mean, I, I, my face was known enough, but, mm-hmm. um, it charged me with a conspiracy and they realized I didn't have the attorney to fight it. I had a little bit of a juvenile history. And that sort of buried me. So I had to take the plea that was offered. Um, originally, it was 10 years. Um, they off, they were going to charge us with all of the RICO Act originally. Like, dude, it was three grams of cocaine. What? <laughs> what? Yes, sir. Look it up. God. So 1994 um, is when they charged me. 1995 is when they caught me because I did take off. I'm, I'm, you know, Once I knew that I was in deep trouble, I bailed out. I took off a little bit, made my life worse, made my case worse by fleeing. Mm-hmm. Um, they finally caught up with me in 95. They sentenced me to a total of five years. Then I wound up getting out in 2000. It, where did you serve your time then? Ah, uh, see, this is the old school stretch. So 94, you got to remember, was right after the Camp Hill riots. And that's where everybody had to go. Everybody through the whole state had to go okay. to Camp Greaterford on one side, or um, it was another a place in Pittsburgh on the other. But then you have to go through Camp Hill, and then you got sent to your prison. So I went through Greaterford for a couple of weeks, totally terrifying. I mean, the biggest steel gates you ever saw, guards and inmates screaming at you. I remember walking into Greaterford, and this is a guy that no experience in any state prison whatsoever. How how old were you at this point in time? Maybe 24, 25, somewhere around a kid. Too young to know better. Mm -hmm. Um, I meet this nurse, and a nurse, it looks nice. So I'm like, we all have to go to the nurse to get our blood done and stuff like that. So I'm waiting, actually, because I'm like, wow, a nice face. Everything else in here is terrifying. I'm waiting to go and get my browns. And um, this nurse sits me down. She has a guard grab me by my arm. They hold my arm down. She stabs me like it's a knife with a, with a hypothermic needle to get my blood. And then she asks me as she's drawing my blood, she's like, where do you want your body sent? And I'm like, excuse me? She's like, where do you want your body sent when you're dead? You know, we got to know what you want to have it buried here on grounds. You want to have it, you know, the family going to pick you up because you're not going to make it past today. That's what she said to me. What? So, I'm ready to poop my pants, dude. I'm from New York. Here. <laughs> so uh, she got me good. She went, she, but what really what the, the, the cause of that was, was she was trying to wake me up because I'm laughing, giggling. You know, I got my street clothes on, hanging out with the homies in the bullpen. And she's literally looking at me thinking, dude, you don't have any idea what you're walking into right now. Huh. And it was literally the most terrifying experience of my entire life. How I survived it, I don't know. I don't. I yeah. can't tell you today how I survived it, but I did. So you did all told five years, you said? Yeah, I was sentenced to – I got a sentence originally on um, the judge when she sentenced me. She said, you know what? You're from New York. You're down here in Allentown. You're causing trouble. So I'm going to give you the maximum sentence possible, which was five to ten years on the conspiracy. It was two different conspiracy charges. Um, I got the one conspiracy charge dismissed, um, and the other one I got it appealed down. And I wound up getting a two-and-a-half to five-year sentence, which I wind up doing – I only had a few months left by the time they let me go. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave me a couple months of parole. Um, out of Frackville. That's where I wound up doing the majority of my time was in Frackville. So I, I want to come back to to when you met Eddie, but before I do that, just to finish out your story kind of. So, so when when did you, because uh, obviously you seem like you've, you've turned your life around now. Um, hmm. So w- when did when did that happen? Was that while you were in prison after you got out or? Yeah, I tell this story to my children um, because I don't, I don't hold things back from anybody and anybody that asked me, I tell this story too. Um, it was in Camp Hill. Like I said, it was after the riots. So the guards were understandably um, 
violent. They, they, they had experienced many things in the Camp Hill riots that people don't want to talk about. Nurses and guards being raped and other inmates raping other inmates. It was, it was, it was hell. Oh, I was in right a couple years afterwards. Um, I got in trouble in the kitchen. Uh, they take me to the hole. I figure, you know, they're going to lock me in a cell for a couple of days. Um, as soon as I go into the hole, this big, massive captain, I mean, this guy was like six foot eight, huge, grabs me by my shirt. They pull me in. I'm, ha- I'm handcuffed from behind and they just start beating me. I mean, I've, I've never got a beating like that ever. And I've been beaten, but I never got beat like that. And they, so they drag my bloody corpse into a cell um, in Camp Hill in the hole. And um, they, le- they left me naked. They left me hogtied. They sprayed me down with a freezing cold water hose. And then they opened up the windows in the middle of the winter and turned the air conditioner on and left Jeez. me like that for two weeks. I got no food, no water. My ribs are broken for sure. All my fingers were broke. I could feel that because they stepped on it with boots when I kept trying to get my, my balance. And um, I remember praying and I said, you know what? I've made a lot of foxhole prayers in my life. I'll change this. I'll change that. I swear to goodness. But I got a response back. And you know, it was, it was, it, I don't know if it was just because I was on the verge of death or it was because I was at that desperation where I finally got to hear it. And I got to hear a response back. So if you turn that thing around, if you walk out of here and you do what you promised me, I promise you that you'll live a, a, a prosperous life. And, you know, not just a summary of what was being said, obviously it was a deeper conversation, but um, that was the moment where I decided that I can either let this break me. I'm obviously a terrible drug dealer. I'm obviously a terrible criminal. I'm here. I am sitting doing five years. Like I wasn't very good. Uh, or I can, I can turn around and use this experience to, um, that God's given me one more chance. Maybe he saved my life by putting me in prison. It probably saved my life. Um, so that's what I did. I, I turned ever since that point, I went to college classes. Um, I, I educated myself. Um, I used the time to correct, you know, that's the part they keep forgetting. It's a correctional system. So it's supposed no, to be. Yeah. Right. So we have to self correct ourselves. And there is a, a group of people in there that were about that. We're going to try and say, you know what? I may never get out of this prison, but I'm going to live vicariously through you. So I use those type of um, people, those tutors and those mentors in prison uh, to get me to the point where I am around. Like it was, it was a miracle. Literally, it was a miracle. That's great. I mean, that's, that's an incredible story. So, Thank you. so, let, so let's turn back and talk about um, Eddie Mack. So is that, is that his full name, Eddie Mack? Or is that a... His name is Eddie McDevitt, Edward okay. McDevitt. Okay. Um, his uh, DC number AM9709. Yeah, that's it. And it's sad that I know that off the top of my head um, because that man was also a part of saving my life. Um, as I got close to getting out of Frackville, uh, I got a parole date finally. And I didn't really care that much because I had been there for so long. I only had a few months. I didn't have anywhere to go. So, like, what did I care? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. nobody waiting for me. Uh, so I, I got in a fight with. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, the leader, the imam of the Muslim Brotherhood in Frackville. And that's pretty much a death sentence. Like those guys are obviously deeply embedded in the prison system. And um, they put a contract on me and they wanted me dead in the yard. And um, Eddie Mack uh, went and squashed that, came literally put his own neck on the line, knowing that he has to spend the rest of his life with these people. I'm leaving. Um, but he just, he did it because we became um, such close friends and, um, you know, I, I spent probably the entire three years um, that I was up in Frackville getting to know Eddie McDevitt as a person. And it's one of the few people that you meet that will own the entire portion of his case. No, oh, it's this his fault. Or if this wasn't this, then this would have happened. Like you always hear that. Oh, I'm innocent. Yeah. innocent people up there. Um, very few people ever just own it completely and take full responsibility for it. And I did. 
Um, but when you pull up his case law, you see what happened to Eddie, and it's it's shocking that this happened. So, so what is Eddie's Eddie's background? Can you take us through his case? And he has a life sure. sentence, but you know right. how how did he end up there? Eddie McDevitt, um, in 1983, when I was nine years old, um, got went to a bar uh, around the corner from his home. Uh, it was a regular pub that he usually visited, and um, he had some grievances. He was a little, you know, tough guy from South Philly. Like he liked to, you know, run his mouth a little bit, like any other kid did. Um, so apparently, Eddie's father and his off-duty police officer had some issues that Eddie wasn't quite aware of. But Eddie knew the guy didn't like him. He didn't like they didn't like each other. They go to a bar, they get drunk. One guy invites Eddie out, or Eddie invites the guy out. Who knows? Uh, to go outside and fight. And that's what everybody says literally in every single witness report. So he goes outside with this guy. They get into a physical fight. Guy winds up falling backwards, um, splits his skull open on a, a step, and Eddie gives him a you know a little bit of a, a, a one-two while he's laying on the ground. Um, so Eddie gets arrested uh, because the guy winds up going he, – he went into a coma first, and then he died. Uh, Eddie got arrested for it. Uh, originally, he got charged um, with a manslaughter and $2,000 bail. When it was discovered that he was an off-duty um, uh, former police officer, uh, they changed the entire charge to uh, first-degree murder. Uh, they originally tried to put him on death row, um, and he wound up getting a life sentence out of it. Um, that was back in 1983. Hey, everybody. Taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode 230. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards Free and Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide. New slave labor, they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major. So they changed it. So they didn't know at, at the fact that this was an off duty or not off duty, uh, I guess retired police officer or something. Uh, right. Former police officer. And then when they found that when out, they, they completely changed the, the charging. Well, it wasn't that the, the I believe that the the responding officers, if you look at the court documentation, because one thing that prison is great for is a law library. You can pull up anybody's case, especially if somebody has been there that long. You can pull up every detail. Mm-hmm. So I did. And um, the, the responding officers knew that was a police officer was in his wallet. You know, they, he didn't it wasn't like he didn't have identification on him, but they also knew it was a bar fight. So they charged him accordingly. It was a bar fight. The guy got his ass. He wound up you know, dying off of it. But it wasn't intentional, obviously. He had no intent of walking in there and killing this man. Um, So eventually, I guess the district attorney's office down in Philadelphia decided that that's not good enough. They're going to make him an example in the mid-80s. And they they charged him with the first degree uh, capital murder. Uh, So they they sought the death penalty. Jesus. Yeah. So So years, nothing years later, still waiting for, you know, somebody to say, oops, sorry. (laughs) So when when you met Eddie in prison, what was his um, 
<laughs> you know, what's his feeling about about serving his his life in prison? I mean, how's he how's he dealing with that? Um, it's literally right in front of me right now. This is a letter from Eddie McDevitt, and I have hundreds of these, and I can show you what happens with Eddie. And I watched it happen while I was there. Eddie needs somebody to keep him grounded, or else the the pure anger and the the um, he just he had no acceptance on this life sentence. He he still believes that he should be free, and he refuses to admit that he's going to die inside prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very very difficult um, person to be able to to even communicate with because you don't know where he is that day. And this guy. We used to do track in the in the uh, excuse me we used to do yard in the summer it was two and a half hour shots at one time you go off for two and a half hours this guy would sprint full Forrest Gump style that track for two and a half hours only time he'd ever stop is grab a drink go right back to the track and do it again there was that much built up inside a mm-hmm. massive humongous person um, that is literally trying to contain this beast so he doesn't give him justification to keep him in there he has not caught any new charges he has not. Um, done anything that I mean? You're talking about 36 years in prison, yeah. and he's pretty much been a, a stand-up model um, prisoner for the most part, minus incidents, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, what what is the the path to him getting clemency? Is there? I mean, is there? Any, assume there's no appeals two left, or right? The appeals have been squashed and squandered. There's there's no appeals left. He has two options left. Um, he can apply for commutation through the governor's office or he applies for commutation from the president. Um, so those two things is what we're pursuing because he could write a letter um, on obviously some weird looking paper and send it off to the governor's office and it'll be disposed of in the filing cabinet labeled trash bin where he could where we could be able to write out a proper letter. Um, trying to get support from his own community, from people that would be, you know, people that you wouldn't expect him to support, people that would not, not be expected to support him. Mm-hmm. So being, uh, there's an officer that I know that owns a bar. I'm not going to drop his name just because, you know, this is something that maybe the other officers are frowned upon, but he's going to write a letter of commutation, a, a letter of recommendation for commutation to Eddie. Um, and that's a police officer that, you know, this is a charge of, uh, of an officer being killed at the hands mm-hmm. of somebody. So it's very powerful to hear that a, a police officer that read the case file originally said, no, I'd never write that letter for you, Rick, um, came back to me and said, you know what? After I read his file, um, I, I totally agree that he should be, he's already served his time. His time has been served. He should have been home 25 years ago at the tops. The maximum at that time was seven to 14 years for manslaughter, first degree. Um, so at worst case scenario, he should have been gone 22 years ago. Yeah, he served the sentence more than twice. That's yeah. ridiculous. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you know, being like when I think about growing up and, you know, when I was younger, going to bars, getting, getting rowdy, something, <laughs> something like that, it could happen to anybody. I mean, happens all the time. Yeah, it's, it does. It's accidental. People have accidents on a constant basis and we live with those regrets, obviously. And Eddie is super regretful. He, the, the family of the police officer has already forgave him 20 years ago because he just kept writing letters over and over again saying, look, I never had any intent, no matter what the newspaper said. I never intended on doing that. But there's another issue there for Eddie. And the other issue is that what if we do get him out? What what, what happens? His family's gone. He has nothing. It's 36 years ago. His dad's dying in a nursing home. His brother has been off um, and he has nothing else left. And just mentally, how do we get him back in society and expect him ever to be the same again? There is no Eddie McDevitt from 1983. That guy's dead. And who who is responsible then 
to care for this guy and put him back together again. Um, you know, that's the other part that we are, we're pushing hard to get him out. But at the same time, uh, unfortunately, it's sad to say it, the only life he knows is behind those walls. He knows nothing about, he only mm-hmm. spent 10 years free. So uh, that's really, I mean, an indictment of the system. I mean, there's so many guys like that in the system that, yep. you know, on all kinds of different charges on nonviolent drug charges. Um, I just same. had uh, Rufus Rochelle who, um, actually, the show's airing today. We're recording this on a Friday. But uh, he did 32 years in prison for uh, – and it was all – there was no uh, actual drugs found. It was all ghost dope, just people testifying yeah. against him to get their you know sentences reduced to, so they could get their own freedom. And uh, 32 years for drugs. Yeah, 32 years for drugs. They didn't even find any drugs. It was It's just all hearsay. It's completely ridiculous. And he comes out. Yeah, and he's, and he's an older guy now. And – you know what? What are you supposed to do? How do you? Right. It's it's an insane system, and I mean that that's one of the main reasons I do this show. I'm just trying to get people to wake up, and uh, you know it's it's a small little Jeez. you know corner of the internet, but you know just trying to get people to wake up. Please, now I I do do a little bit of work. Like uh, my buddy Frank came home uh, last year, and before he came home, we were working with him trying to adjust. He did 11 years in. Um, I just met a guy down in South Philly. Um, he did 30 years in. He knew Eddie Mac, actually. They grew up together. He showed mm-hmm. me pictures. I didn't even know this guy from a can of paint. I just saw him the other day at that protest I was telling you about. Just That's how God works. Some guy that's got life on parole and did 30 years in prison knew Eddie McDevitt. They grew up together. Um, and he's even shocked. He's like, what do you mean Eddie's still in? He's like, I thought he was out and like moved to Florida. But um, it's another one where he, nobody was there for him and he almost put himself right back in 30 years of prison time. And, and he just was, Hey, have a great day. Here's your box of stuff. Walk out there and don't violate your parole. Like, how do you do that? How, how, how that, where, where are we as a society that we don't recognize that that part of it has to be addressed. It, it, there's massive opportunity to stop people going back in. If we just get them at that point where we, where they're, where they looking for the most help they can possibly take is at that time when they walk out of prison and they really don't ever want to go back there ever again. Mm-hmm. Every, nobody ever says, Oh shit, I want to go back in. No, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And they have that taste of freedom. And what do I do now? I mean, exactly. They don't have a driver's license. They don't have clothes. Don't have a place to stay. Do you want me to tell you what happened to me when I got out of prison? I'll, I'll yeah. give you a real life. Yeah, it's a, uh, there's a halfway house in Walnut Street in Reading, Pennsylvania that used to be run by a guy named Bill Tillman. Bill Tillman uh, had a the, the place run by a guy named Wade Phillips. Bill Tillman was a complete junkie. Everybody knew that. I knew him back in the day because when I used to run the streets of Reading, he was definitely one of the customers. He was just a really tall white guy with a big, like he looked like a roll-on deodorant. Exactly what he looked like. So everybody, you definitely knew Bill Tillman, right? <laughs> Literally, if, if you could put a roll on the order and put a face on it, that was Bill Tillman. White is, as a ghost. That's the most ridiculous analogy. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is me. I'm a cartoonist too. So, And then we had uh, Wade Phillips, who was the director of the halfway house. Wade Phillips was a convicted sex offender that we did time with. We knew that because he was locked up in protective custody. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew who Wade Phillips was. He was my director of programming when I walk into my halfway house. The, the rest wow. of the people that were junkies and sex offenders, I had a guy – uh, when I would go back from work, you had to take a, a urine test, usually randomly, but at least three times a week. And uh, um, the guy that would take my urine test would try and offer to hold my my junk while I took the urine test. He used to used to follow me every time I go to work. Would offer me twenty dollars if he if he could give me oral sex. And then he would tell if I, if I said anything, he'd call my pro officer and have me violated. 
The very last day I leave the halfway house after working for three months at a crappy ass job and saving all my money in a bank account because we weren't allowed to have the money. Um, Weed Phillips hands me my bank account and shows I have $1 left in there. They drain the rest of it, took it. And he's like, what are you going to do about it? You're a state prisoner. I'll just violate you and send you back. And I literally went across the, the, tape, the desk on him. I punched him dead in his mouth. I waited for my state parole officer to come back and charge me. My state parole officer was like, look, he wrote me, my state parole officer wrote me a check for $200 so I could get a room and stay somewhere because he knew exactly what that halfway house is about. And he's like, man, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. And he's like, I'm not going to charge you for punching that guy in the face. Like, don't do it anymore. But um, yeah, it was just, that shows you even after you get out after that point where you get that taste of freedom, it, how like it's all entrapment. It's all just a setup trying to, it's a revolving door that they need you back in there because everything is financial guarantees. Yeah. And you get people like the people you just mentioned leeching off the system and just, <laughs> just hanging on. And, using it. Yeah. Well, they, what they really do is that they send these guys back to prison immediately. These guys go back and then they may never ever come back out again. They may never be the same people that had an opportunity once in the halfway house experienced that. They, whose fault is that then? You know, that's these guys for their price and they got to go out to something like that like there's a lot of pitfalls in the system that definitely need to be addressed that's for sure yeah i, I don't know how they fix it i mean it's it's, it's good there's been sentencing reform a little bit with the first step act um you know sure. there's still a lot of people in prison right now who shouldn't be in prison as, as we were just talking about but that last piece you know i i, I mean if if the government can't handle incarcerating people in a you know in a way that doesn't you know, I mean, pr- prisons are a disaster right now. Horrible con- conditions. Um, you got uh, outbreaks of uh, uh, what is it down in the fl- in in, uh, in Florida? In Florida prison down there. Outbreak of uh, I don't know, so some something ridiculous. Legionnaires great. disease or something like that. Oh, great, like the bubonic plague again. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, Please. yeah. Things that they're not being they could, that could be prevented easily prevented if they mm-hmm. were treated like human beings, but we're not. We're not treated like humans. We're the lowest form of life. Yeah, literally. Yeah, so I I don't know what the answer is. I mean, probably getting the private sector more involved um, with that transition. Um, you know, because I mean, a, a lot of people when they come out, they want to work. They're ready to work. Um, they need right. need an opportunity. And uh, there's businesses, companies out there that'll give felons opportunities. Um, of course, I, that's what I do for a living. I handle people's payrolls and their corporate taxes and. There's incentives to hire a felon. They'll take money off your federal taxes the next year when you submit it. Instead of owing money, you might get money back just for really? hiring. Absolutely. It's an incentive. It's In this state in Pennsylvania, the last time I remember was $4,500 in a credit that they get off their federal taxes. Look, this is what I do for a living. You can ask any CPA in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, single mothers, people that are in situations where they were out of work for a while, veterans, they get money off their federal taxes. But absolutely, hiring a felon is – a big part of that President Trump's program to try and get people incentivized to hire people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you back on your federal taxes. That's good. Awesome. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. And the other part, we, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like, we got to incentivize everyone. I get sentenced and then I get out. Like, Give me an incentive not to re- repeat because right now mm-hmm. there isn't much for people. Like, I, There's no lay at the end of the tunnel. My felony is going to be on my record for the rest of my life. I can never own a firearm. Some states you can never vote again. Like, There's a lot of things that they should incentivize it. If I go seven years, um, drop that felony off so I don't have to answer that question on an application anymore. I don't want to have to answer the question anymore. I do. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on owning a firearm for felons? I mean, my, my perspective, you know, if you're going to trust someone to come back out into society, 
Obviously, there's ways to obtain a firearm illegally. So if somebody wanted to do that, they could. And if you're giving someone back their freedom, saying, here's your freedom, you know, you can get a job, you can start a family, but you can't protect them. You can't protect your own life, your your own property. It's preach to me, bro. I got four kids underneath this roof right now. And I won't tell you exactly what happens underneath my roof, but I'll tell you that we're protected for sure. Um, I think that it's, again, it should be something that if, if and me as an ex-con is making the application for a gun permit and I'm going out and purchasing the gun from a legal store, then obviously I'm doing all the legal things because I know exactly how to get a gun illegally that you would never about it. So that shouldn't be the thing that sends a red flag off. That should be the thing that sends, hey, that's a great – look at that. That guy used to be an ex-con, and here he is applying for his gun permit so he can protect his family, carrying his concealed weapon. I'm putting myself on the record as saying I have these things. Right. Would you rather be off the record with a felony? I mean, which way you want it? Like, it doesn't make much sense. What are you asking for? That's craziness. <laughs> yeah, that's silly. Anyway, Rick um – you know, it's been great getting to talk with you and uh, and hearing about Eddie and getting his name out there. Because um, I mean, that's the first step. More people hearing about his case, and, and you know, so they others because there's a big, big community of uh, of people pushing for clemency, and uh, especially right now with uh, with COVID. So, any anything else you want to say about uh, about Eddie's case or anything else? Uh, plug anything you want to plug or anything like that. Um, I just want to say that honestly, I, for somebody like you, I appreciate what you're doing because that kind of work is imperative uh, to hear what you think is a small voice is not because obviously here I am. I heard about you. People in my chapter, um, people like my drinking club, they heard about you too. And um, I, I really do appreciate the work that you're doing, bro. And, and if there's anything that we can offer, you know, if you want to be able to speak to these guys face to face, the guys that are doing time in prison, I, I can offer that connection to you because of what I do for that Pennsylvania Alliance for Justice and Reform. That's my nonprofit that we run to help longtime prisoners. I didn't want to look for a plug to be perfectly honest with you sure, because yeah. that's about. But um, yeah, we I, I I encourage other people to do the same thing I'm doing. If you know somebody did a stretch of time, don't just wake welcome them with a bunch of balloons. Like you want to talk to them six months before they get out. Show them how to shake the jail lingo, mm-hmm. how to tie, how to do a resume before they walk out the door. Get them prepared. You know, like do your part. Like everybody does their part. I think we can make a big difference. All right, Rick. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, young man. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's show. Another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running program, our flagship program where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out, and uh, if you like it all, Please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Lions of Liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, which you can find by 
type in Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook. Clicking search, comes up, say you want to join it, answer a question, bam, you're in, and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you. So check that out. That's all I have for today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fires of Liberty burning.